0: We really, if ever, think about the time and attention that leaders need to put in place. You know, what are they paying attention to? Where are they spending their time?
1: I first met Samantha Rocky probably 15 years ago at a meeting at the SAB building in Park Lane in Santon. I really messed up in that meeting. It didn't go very well for me but somehow she saw the opportunity to work with us and we landed up cracking a little deal that essentially was the catalyst that I built Cerebra on. And we maintained that friendship throughout the years, we learned a hell of a lot from her as a business person. She functioned as a mentor for Cerebra for a very long time. And today, Sam is based in London, is a global expert in leadership development and the co-founder, of a really interesting leadership development consultancy called Thompson Harrison their tagline is helping leaders do what matters most. Sam was in South Africa for some work and I took the opportunity to connect with her, to host her here at the studio, to talk a little bit more about her view on how leadership is changing as a discipline, how the world around us is forcing us to think about leadership in new ways. We look at her insight into this changing landscape and we unpack some of the really big questions that modern leaders are being forced to ask and what seems to be, certainly appears to be, an increasingly complex and complicated world. I hope you'll enjoy the show. So Sam, Rocky, we've had this distinct pleasure of crossing paths with each other professionally and personally over the last, what must it be like 14, 15 years or something like that. And I'm curious to know, because just as you've kind of been involved in my career and how it's uh, developed and, and watching me kind of go through the motions of, of building and selling Cerebra and then moving into kind of a different space, I, I've watched you do the same physically and, and kind of like, you know, professionally, you went to Switzerland first and now find yourself in the bustling metropolis of London. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of those transitions and and why you decided to go from the relative safety of a, a corporate um, job to consulting for the first time forever?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, it's lovely to be here, Mike. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. I suppose I always think of my career as having sort of three transition points. The first, of course, was getting my first job, which was in the public service in 1995.
1: Job, public service, Sam.
0: (laughs) Yeah, back in the day. And that was a very exciting time, as you can imagine. I, I think it was it was a moment of huge euphoria and excitement in South Africa. And I was there for five, uh, what I call the Nelson Mandela years. I left in 99. And then I moved to SAB Limited, which a month before I joined, actually, I had listed on the London Stock Exchange. Okay. So when I signed up, it was a South African company. When I joined and sort of set foot in the offices, it had suddenly become the beginnings of a global company. And mm. I was there for sort of 17 years. And of course, as everyone knows, we were then bought out by ABM Bev. And I had a decision to make. I had a decision to make whether I was going to sort of go on my own and, and start my own business and move into consulting, which I'd always really been curious about and and sort of wondered whether it was something that I was going to be able to do or not. Having worked in two big organizations mm. And to my joy, I've actually found it to be hugely interesting and engaging. Um, The best piece of advice I ever got actually was uh, when I started my consulting business. I asked somebody, you know, why would people buy something from me? And the person said, well, as long as you're helping solve a problem, Mm. there will always be a market. And that has been something that I've really thought a lot about. Yeah.
1: So, what problem are you solving?
0: Well, I don't think I'm solving any one specific problem. Tell me
1: about all the problems <laughs> so that you are solving.
0: So many problems. Well, I don't think I'm solving any particular problem, but certainly helping people think about what is happening in their contexts, uh, in their environments, and, and making sense of it. So, I, I think of myself as someone who is a sense maker hmm. and somebody who can really partner. Um, with with senior leaders leading very complex organisations and helping them think about, you know, what they need to do, what matters most to them and what would help them really kind of navigate a very uncertain future, to use an incredibly hackneyed phrase.
1: It feels like, and I I don't know if this is a function, I don't know if this is something that happens when we get older, but it feels like the world is just getting incredibly complicated and a lot of the kind of distinct definitions for things or boundaries between things or the categories that we traditionally uh, placed ideas into are are shifting and i feel like that's specifically difficult for leaders because the decisions that they have to make have in you know in many instances long-term implications the ripples of those decisions go on you know for for long periods of time, and they're doing so with, you know, information and evidence and ideas that are rooted in a past that seems less complicated. What what are some of the questions that leaders are asking when they call you into the boardroom for the first time?
0: Well, I think, I mean, our starting point is always to think about time and attention. Mm. So, I mean, the resources that we pay attention to in organizations are things like budgets, you know, capital, how you are, you know, where you putting your energy from a marketing point of view. But we really, if ever, think about the time and attention that leaders need to put in place. You know, what are they paying attention to? Where are they spending their time? So a question that I think is a very simple question, but it's almost one of the most profound questions, is how are you spending your time? Because it's where you spend your time and where you place your attention as a leader, that almost defines everything. So, so that would be a question that I'd always start with. And then, of course, from there, you have the basis for a very uh, solid conversation.
1: And what are some of the kind of inherent mistakes that leaders are making when they prioritize time? What, what, are, what are some of the patterns that you're seeing in, in behaviors that are not having the impacts that leaders hope based on that, that one variable?
0: Well, Mike, you speak about this idea of, you know, in the past, things felt sort of less complicated, more clear. And I think we are going through a transition. I mean, I think all the data seems to indicate that actually we are moving from one way of working into a kind of a whole new way of working, which does require letting go. And we often ask leaders to bring with them their calendar for the past month to get a sense of what they're actually doing. Mm. And what's really interesting and fascinating for me is, Seeing how much time is spent on things that actually represent the past, hmm. the way meetings are held, you know, the, the kind of conventions that are, in a sense, almost are so assumption based, really, that you know, days are delineated in a way that is that feels very old fashioned.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of things that are being done because it's the way we've always done it, rather than because this is a valuable way to spend time. Right? Yeah, quite obviously.
0: Absolutely. So how you get people to reimagine their time.
1: Well, think- how do you do that? I mean, that's what I'm really intrigued by, right? How do you how do you unlearn decades of oh am I asking you to give away all your IP here? <laughs> give away. <laughs> so I think that that's intriguing to me is how do you get people into a space where they can think fundamentally differently?
0: Well, one of the things that we know for sure is that people can't do two things at the same time. One is short termism is the enemy of of long-term thinking. So for people to really take a step back and to reflect on what they're doing, they need to have the space to do that in. And to create that space requires a kind of dismantling of how they spend their day without thinking about it. Most of us spend our days in ways in which if we really truly thought about it with any meaning, we would we'd want to change that. Mm. I can't remember who who said this, but how you spend your day is how you spend your life. But we don't really spend enough time thinking about what that looks like. Um, so you know, dismantling our ideas of how we should spend our time and where we should spend our time is a really important starting point. but you can only do that from a place of reflection. Mm. You can't do that when you are already in that mode. So we often talk about taking uh, leaders into what we call a rethink tank, where we provide an opportunity to really rethink you know, the way that you've always done something. And this sounds incredibly simple, Mike. I mean, this is not, a huge. you could literally put people in a retreat-like space for two days with just a printout of their calendar and ask them to reprioritize time based on what matters most to them, to their organization, to their society, to their community. And, you know, it it would be self-evident.
1: So I guess the challenge then is, I mean, I know those spaces exist, right? I've been to conferences, I've been, I've participated in retreats to varying degrees of kind of charisma and and kind of motivation focus, but the behavioral change component of that is not always long lasting. Is that just because of me or how do you, how do you build in behavioral change? How do you, how do you make sure or guarantee is it even possible to do so that the people that you work with do shift the way that they act, not just the way that they think, right? Because that's the next the next most obvious step.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're you getting to the heart of it. Of course, you can't just send people on a three-day tra- – in fact, there's nothing more frustrating than someone going on a three-day training program, coming back – sort of acting in a slightly different way. It's a waste way. of time, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is never going to work. But, I mean, we, we think about surreal behavior change in three ways. One is that it's always contextual. So what the context is critical, both as a support mechanism but also as a disruptive mechanism. You know, if the context is not supporting, the change is not going to happen. The second is relational. You know, every single uh, piece of leadership behavior is in relation to somebody else. And the third is personal you know, it's, it's an idea as old as, uh, it is the oldest of the ideas, is that self-awareness is sort of step one to any real behavior change. Yes.
1: yes. And I
0: think that uh, increasingly people are not given an opportunity to do really a lot of reflection, although saying that we are continuously bombarded with better versions of ourselves through self-help books and, you know, it's kind of the paradox, isn't it, is that, I went to a bookshop this morning and I was sort of struck in the bestsellers list. There must have been 20 books on how to be a better version of myself, which in itself is completely exhausting, Mm, coupled mm. with the fact that I have no time to really think about how to be a better version of myself. So I think we're working within these different paradoxes, but I do believe really in the power of us stepping back and finding ways to reflect on our own behavior and being really mindful about it and deliberate
1: at the risk of, of sounding um, cynical, is there any resistance in in the fact that like the traditional definition of a leader, kind of when we think leader, we have often a, a construct in our minds that's been produced by, I guess, years and years of reinforcement of this kind of big, powerful, commanding presence, clear in their thinking. If that is your predominant operating model for thinking about leadership, I guess then if that is your view, then those would be considered kind of softer skills. Do you think there's a big movement in leadership towards, and I hate saying softer skills because they aren't softer, but what is happening to our construct of leadership? How are we thinking differently about the basic definition of leadership and what are the implications for people who kind of sit firmly in that old model, you know? Uh
0: I mean, I think that is the most one of the most important questions, and and certainly in the work that we do, we talk a lot about negative capability, Mm. which John Keats first spoke about. He's a poet, an English poet. He spoke about it when he was looking at what made geniuses geniuses, um, or genia genia. I'm not sure of what the exact phrase is, but and he was interested to see that people who were really able to deal with complexity didn't have an irritable grasping of fact and reason, they were able to do the opposite, which is they were able to sit in the discomfort of the situation
1: for longer,
0: of not knowing, longer than everyone else. And Albert Einstein famously quoted, and once again, I'm not sure if this is absolutely accurate or not. He said, it's not that I'm cleverer than anyone else. It's just that I'm able to sit with the problem longer. And this is the requirement of leadership at this moment in time is that those leaders who are really flourishing are able to sit in discomfort and don't seek after absolutely having all the data to make a decision, are able to listen to different voices, are able to kind of expand outside of their echo chambers, get multiple perspectives. These are the leaders that are able to lead their organizations in a more productive and generative way.
1: I mean, that's... That costs something thinking like that, right? Like it's not an easy. Our minds don't naturally do that. Our minds will typically go. I spoke a little bit to uh, Jacques Rousseau about this this topic. Is our minds are are resistant to pain, resistant to obstruction, but sitting in uncertainty is it, it costs energy and mental calories. But is that like a is it a skill you you can develop? Is it a a muscle that you can make stronger? Can you? Develop your capacity for uncertainty, or is it just something that some people can do and something that others can't?
0: Well, I mean, I'm going to kind of throw out a couple of of ideas here. And of course, this is, I obviously haven't done all the research in all the world. So this is what I'm aware of, but there must. I know, I wish I'd done more, but there must be, you know, something, you know, the adult development theorists like Bob Keegan based in Harvard. I mean, his view would be that as we progress in our lives, we become more able to sit in uncertainty and deal with complexity. And it's a function of, in a sense, getting older, really. Um, Beyond older and wiser. Correct. Yeah. Jennifer Garvey-Berger talks a lot about this, actually, in the theories of mind, which is that as we grow into different theories of mind, we can absorb more complexity, more perspectives. So that does, there's something wonderful about the idea that you get older and wiser and more able to deal with that. Not everyone does, by the way, but this is part of the theory. I mean, a lot of the research supports the idea that mindfulness actually is one of the ways to access this because you don't have, you're able to, in some senses, have a metacognitive view of what you're doing. And thinking
1: about the way you're thinking exactly, yeah.
0: and that helps you, you know, in a sense, not immediately move into action. Because what we're talking about here, Mike, is not being knee-jerk in our responses, but rather being more thoughtful, and more expansive in our thinking. Actually, bringing more ideas in rather than few few ideas.
1: Yeah, because I guess that is the the easiest solution is defaulting to the most natural response. But the most natural response is, is in my experience, seldom very seldom the right one and we'll excuse that often by going it's my gut it's you know this is you know i've got experience and and sometimes that what we fail to acknowledge is that that experience world we've constructed around us especially as leaders tends to reinforce a lot of the assumptions we've made about the way things work or you know kind of our perspective or our view of the world if this is your first time listening to the one eyed man and you're wondering what i'm trying to achieve here why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise. And will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the one eyed man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now back to the show. I want to change tactics a little bit because you, you have speaking of perspective, this really interesting view of what it's like to lead in South Africa right now, based on your experiences of being here, but also being able to look at it kind of from outside the bottle from other hubs in the world and and kind of keeping close tabs and and keeping in touch with friends and family here as well tell Tell me a little bit about what you are seeing from a it sometimes feels like South Africa's in a particularly messy place. But I don't know if that's one of, you know, leaders in Thailand are feeling the same way or, you know, kind of you know, leaders in, in the Czech Republic are, are wrestling with the same problem. Uh, is everybody struggling with complexity or is this a particularly complex place right now?
0: Well, I suppose and I'm pausing for a moment because, you know, I do two types, I guess, of different works, which hopefully will help explain why I'm answering the question in the way that I am. So the first is working in our company where we work with global companies, essentially global companies, not dissimilar to Saab Miller, where we work with senior leaders across multiple multiple functions, uh, countries and so on. But the second uh, thing that I do is I'm a tutor on the Oxford Strategic Leadership Program based in Oxford. Um, It's part of the Oxford Side Business School. And there I work and tutor around 70 to 80 senior leaders a year and the reason I mentioned that is these senior leaders honestly come from the broadest range of leadership roles from uh, government ministers through to CEOs, through to public servants, through to people heading large uh, non-for-profit organizations. And what do they have in common? Because that's really the question that you're asking. What are the things that is exercising everybody? And I think countries aside, I think all leaders that we encounter really concerned about some of the challenges that are being, that's being presented by technology, the challenges around in in Europe and Asia and uh, the US, the aging population, the demographics, the challenges around what Hyman's and Tim's calls new power. So where's power coming from? Um, so there are these consistent themes. I mean, what is different, of course, is the tonality of the country, you know,
1: sure. the unique. All the labels potentially that we attach to those those forces exactly. or trends. Yeah,
0: know. but the trends, the global trends. I mean, the coronavirus is a global trend. I mean, the predictions is that it's always going to be a superbug that gets us in the end. I mean, that is a global concern. These things, globalization actually has made all of our problems quite consistent.
1: So you introduced me to some of Thomas Friedman's work on the topic. He he wrote. Thank you for coming late. Thank you for being late. Thank you for being late. And he speaks about kind of three. Well, he speaks broadly about this age of acceleration. So maybe it's less about the trends and less about how we label them and less about and maybe the rate of change that is so disconcerting to to. I mean, is that what's different? Is it that change is just happening faster? And I feel like that's been in every PowerPoint slide. Since PowerPoint, Mm. or maybe before that, since overhead projectors, we've been saying, you know, change is happening really. But is that, is change accelerating?
0: Well, I think, I don't know whether, I mean, change, of course, is accelerating. But I think the thing that is different, that feels different, is that all of the sort of assumptions and things that held us in place are being disrupted. So things are happening at such speed that we really have no way of kind of adjusting ourselves to the new reality. And we're all, we're continuously feeling like we're in between two, two bits of reality that we try and desperately to make sense of. And I think that's, what's different. You know, we've had a hundred year history of organizations broadly operating in pretty much the same way. And of course that's changed now, mm, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. So I think the disruptions are coming in ways and waves that people are really struggling to catch up with. And of course, you know, we we think about just as we move into focusing on much more the climate emergency, the green economy, for example, I mean, you know, people are talking about stranded assets, you know, all the things that we have around us are not necessarily going to be things that we're going to take into our future. Mm, so wow. we're at yeah. that moment in in history, really, where our past ways of working are really being and being even or being disintermediated by a future and that's a very difficult place to be
1: yeah it's almost like you have to have a lens on all three at the same time you kind of have to be holding the past the present and the future yeah in, in again you you that negative space idea is is those are conflicting ideas in some way the, the the past and the and the future are often diametrically opposed to each other so so that's a skill in its own right and it's not necessarily about being being able to forecast or predict the future. It's it's just stretching your imagination beyond the set of assumptions that dictate absolutely um, all the things we know about what it is that we're talking about based on our experiences of it before. So you, we spoke early on about the kind of leadership construct, and we spoke about how so many people, by virtue of not not because this is an accurate representational, but by virtue of the story that's told about leadership, assume an image in their minds when they think of leader. You're a female-led organization, to experienced, powerful professionals that are working predominantly with with men often uh, because of you know kind of the construct that we've spoken about. What are some of the shifts that you see in the relationships at the highest levels of organizations between men who hold a lot of the power that we've spoken about before? and kind of an evolving appreciation, an increasing appreciation for the, the feminine power without reducing it to kind of a specific label. Is there such a thing? Do women bring different skills, different ideas, a different sensibility to senior workspaces, or is that something we've imagined and uh, gender is completely irrelevant in the leadership space?
0: Gosh, I mean, you asked me a lot of questions there, Mike. Actually,
1: I'm just (laughs) asking you one. I just, it took me a long time to get to.
0: (laughs) Of course, I mean... You know, this is one of the one of the biggest challenges really, um, is how we get multiple voices into the room and um one of the one of the perspectives, of course, is always a gender perspective. But actually I think you asking us if I if I can interpret asking it. Well, let, let me try and ask
1: it better. So the the first question is, why is it important to have multiple voices in the room?
0: Okay, that is a that is a great question, and I'll tell you why I think it's so important. Is um, so, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, and is, is in a sense at the moment held up as an example of someone who really practices and lives this, is this idea of being a, a, moving from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture, and being a learner, as senior as a person might be, is I think the most important thing for leaders, and to be a real learner you have to be able to take in multiple points of view. We do something called CEO's polymath. And polymath is of course, somebody who uh, understands a broad range of disciplines and isn't restricted to just one. Um, And we work with a, a fantastic CEO who sort of said, you know, I just don't feel like I have the capability to really lead this organization into the future, given what's going on in the world. You know, what do you think we need to do? And I think from that point, you know, designing this idea that actually for him, we would bring in as many alternative, interesting new voices into conversation with him to help this kind of broadening perspective has been, I suppose, what you would call perhaps more of a feminine leadership as opposed to just being the know-it-all leader. You know, I think that's where the conversation is going. So how do you extend this idea of, you know, leadership moving, to your point, from being kind of clear in direction, you know, being the big, strong leader into something that encompasses so many more facets, That that is the leadership of the future. Whether it's a female leader or male leader, I think is not particularly relevant. It's a kind of learning leader. Let's, I, I okay. would define them as a learning leader. Which I
1: think is an answer to the second or the, the other part of the question that I would have asked. So I think, you know, the clear answer to is diversity good is that there's enough evidence to support that diversity is not just good morally or ethically, it's also good business or yeah, good thinking absolutely. and good thinking is good business. And the second part is it of it is, is if we can agree that diversity is good, what is it that women uniquely bring to the leadership space, if anything? And if it's, if that's not a useful conversation, then uh, I completely understand that, but I'm interested in your experience to understand how you've been able to shift the thing the thinking around power based on your success as a woman in in the workplace
0: so i think women do bring obviously a lot of i mean there's a, there is as you say a lot of research to support why having women in the room is an, a really important part of um of making better decisions and i think that's what comes down to because you know hist- organizational history is littered with decisions that have been made without having the appropriate voice in the room mm. on and behalf of of behalf yeah. of whoever you're trying to represent. And of course, women are, you know, 51% of the population. So we really do need to be in all of the conversations because they affect women in one form or, or the other. But actually what, what strikes me as as we're talking about this is that we work with some really young, powerful women who very impressively have defined for themselves what their contribution needs to look like, mm. which is in a sense decoupled from the sort of socialized idea of what it means to be a woman. And I find that space very exciting.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, and perhaps I'm articulating it poorly, but I think one of the dangers of watering down the conversation and the tough conversations, because tough conversations are important conversations around gender equality and, and gender uh, parity in the workplace, is that maybe we've... We've also moved too far away from acknowledging the specific presence or skills or contributions that that the female sex, not gender specifically brings to the room and that's an interesting idea, and I'd like to explore that more, so that's why I was peppering you on it but i'll I'll move off that topic now, Sam. It has been an absolute pleasure um unpacking some of the dynamics around like I guess modern leadership or the leadership that is required for the future. But I'm I'm also a huge fan of of practicality, and I guess there might be people uh, listening to this podcast saying I love some of those ideas, and I'm interested in finding out more about how I can kind of invest practically in a understanding what the model of leadership looks like for the future, but also how can I change my behaviors mm. to uh, adapt? So a, a better word, I think, to to some of that. So what are some of the uh, the books slash podcasts slash papers slash whatever it might be movies <laughs> <laughs> that you are enjoying or have enjoyed that you would recommend confidently to people who are interested in kind of digging into any of these topics in more detail?
0: So the idea of being really practical about this is to focus on doing small bits of experimentation mm. and I think the experiments that I would recommend to everybody, actually, is stepping outside of your echo chamber and bringing in multiple perspectives, because I think that helps people make better decisions and be better leaders and also helps you see the world as not being completely kind of polarizing or binary, which is incredibly important. And the person who speaks very eloquently on this topic is Margaret Heffernan. Mm. She has multiple YouTube videos and she's
1: in TED Talk. So, How, do, how would we spell Heffernan?
0: H e f f e r n a n
1: Heffernan. Heffernan. Gotcha. Yeah,
0: and she's on. Uh, she has a number of TED Talk. Really worth uh, watching her. The other Jennifer Garvey Berger. I'm a huge fan. You know she she's written a lot on how we actually break out of these leadership mind traps. So heartily recommend her work. Um, she has a number of podcasts. She's been interviewed, uh, and her her you could look up Growth Edge Coaching. Mm. And you'll find her work um,
1: cultivating leadership. I cultivating
0: leadership, yeah, she's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Thomas Friedman, as you say, thank you mm. for being late. Writes very eloquently on all aspects of the changing context that we uh, that we're experiencing. And of course, if you're really interested in the world of algorithms and the role that women can play in helping uh, leaders make better decisions well, clearly in, the I am. De- <laughs> in the data world, I'm so happy to introduce you to Hannah Fry. Mm-hmm. Wrote a brilliant book called "Hello World." Mm-hmm. Absolutely eye-opening. So she provides a different perspective, certainly, but it's uh, it's incredibly helpful. So the role, you know, the, the critical role that women can play going forward in technology for example mm. so those are, are i'm conscious that i've actually given you three women and one man but please if-, if
1: you could be more representative <laughs> that would be that would be great
0: <laughs> let me have a think on that it's
1: <laughs> so difficult to come up with legitimate men in this space okay sam if people want to get hold of you or connect with you online what are what are good spaces to do that
0: so i'm on linkedin yeah samantha rocky yeah. probably the easiest way to get hold of me or alternatively the company is called Thompson Harrison. It's a very long web link, but. Uh,
1: yeah, we'll put the link in the in the show notes. And yeah, people yeah. can click on it directly from there. Yeah. Sam, thanks again. Really cool to spend some time with you in this forum as opposed to over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, although I'm looking forward to <laughs> a glass of wine. And yeah, best of luck for the future of Thompson Harrison and looking forward to working with you on a couple more projects in future.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. It's been lovely being here. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com. Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king.
0: You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.